Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, in History 101, we do Greek warfare and politics, the Persian Wars, the Peloponnesian Wars, and the Wars of Alexander and his successors. This is a big episode. This episode is usually three to four classes, and we're doing it in one. So I've cut it down, I've streamlined it, but it's going to be big. There's a lot here. So get ready. It's going to be fun. So we start with the Persian Wars. This is where Persia will invade Greece, the Greek homeland. So if you've seen the movie The 300, if you've gotten in the comic book, you know part of it is it's not just the Greeks versus the Persians, but there's a very personal Athens will burn Athenians versus the Persians aspect to it. Um, there's the bravery at, of the Spartans at Thermopylae and 6,000 other Greeks. Uh, there's triumph at Salamis and Marathon. So we'll talk about those things. So what is the Persian Wars? Well, it is this, all the orange at war against that, that little circle on the left in the green. And that circle won. And if your question is, how, why, then great, awesome, because one, you're thinking, and two, that is the first question of history. Herodotus will have that question, and it will take him 900 pages to come up with an answer. Now, his answer, which is written down in the book called The Persian Wars, is not a chronicle. It's not this happens and this happens and this happens. No, it's science. It is, he has a thesis. The Greeks are free and the Persians are not. And that's why they won. Because his starting position is they shouldn't win. The Persians should win. The Persians have never lost. So the Greeks should lose. In fact, it's not only, it's not all the Greeks either. It's only about 13 cities against the entire Persian Empire, which is Persia and India and Egypt and Mesopotamia and Asia Minor and Thrace in Europe, all against a few cities in Greece who don't get along, who are not united. So the first question is, how is that possible? And his answer is, the Greeks are free and the Persians are not. Well, now what do you have to do? Well, one, you have to prove the Greeks are free. Two, you have to prove the Persians are not. Three, you have to prove that freedom matters in war. And four, you have to prove that freedom mattered in this war. That's what history is. That's why history is not names and dates. That's why history is not a summary of events, a chronicle. This happens and this happens and this happens. It's a thesis. It's science. It's the science. It's the study of events. It's the study, it's the scientific study of human activity. Now, is it repeatable? No. Other people will come up, look at the same evidence or new evidence and come up with different ideas. The fall of Rome has over 300 reasons why it has fallen. Which one's right? They're all right. Which one's wrong? They're all wrong. Because every one of them wrote, this is why I'm right. And here's all my evidence. 
And because of that, here's why all the other ones are wrong. All the other reasons are wrong. So history is a is a tumult. It's a you're always arguing with the people who came before you, and you're trying to and you're trying to convince the people who will come after you that you're right. Are you? Maybe. So the methodology is scientific. The results may not be. But that's why history has always been one of the great subjects. Always. From the beginning of Greek schools, history has been part of it. Because it's trying to understand the why. Something science doesn't do. So how did the Greeks win? It's the first question of history. It takes them 900 pages. And it's the idea that history is not a chronicle of names or dates, but a scientific analysis of society, of cultures, of actions, of people, of events, and of consequences. So it starts with a revolt in Ionia, the western coast of Asia Minor, across the Aegean Sea from Greece, from the Greek homeland. Cousins to the Athenians. Now, the Ionians have been conquered by the Lydians, and the Lydians have been conquered by Cyrus and the Persians. And when Cyrus conquered the Lydians, he got the Greeks, like, for free. He got the Ionian Greeks for free. He didn't even go there and conquer them himself. He just, like, sent messengers and said, we conquered the Lydians, we now own you. Well, in around 500 B.C., they revolted. And the Ionian Greeks basically revolted because they were disrespected. No one was mean to them, but remember who the Ionian Greeks are. They're the loser of a loser, right? The Persians defeated the Lydians. The Lydians defeated the Greeks. So do the Persians who own an empire with India in it, with Egypt in it, and with Babylon in it. Do they have to take the loser of a loser seriously? And that's basically the problem. In the Lydian Empire, the Lydians liked the Greeks. They thought the Greeks were cool. Uh, Croesus, the last king of the Lydians, went to Delphi and would hang out with the Delphic Oracle. He was a, what we call a Phil, P-H-I-L, Hellene, H-E-L-L-E-N-E. He was a Phil Hellene. He liked the Greeks. And so Greeks did very well in his empire. The Persians, on the other hand, came from Persia, came from Iran, 3,000 miles away. They didn't care. The, uh, the Ionian Greeks were hillbillies at the edge of the world. And so the Ionians revolted. And basically their idea was, we are at the edge of the world, we'll revolt, and no one will care. And we'll gain our independence. They called on the Greeks to come help, and only Athens came to help. And not even very much. They sent a couple of ships, a couple of guys. Right? But Darius, the third king of the Persians, took this revolt seriously. And then the Ionian Greeks burned down Sardis, which was the uh, provincial capital. And once they did that, Darius had to react. Because it, if he didn't react, it would say to the Egyptians, it would say to the Babylonians, it would say to the Indians, well, if these hillbillies at the edge of the world could revolt and get away with it, well, we're awesome. Why shouldn't we revolt? So Darius gets his army, marches up to Ionia, crushes the revolt, 
And his first question is, who caused this? And not wanting to get into more trouble, the Ionians pointed at Athens and said, they did it, they did it, they did it. They made us revolt. We love you, Darius. And so Darius doesn't go to Greece. He sends an army by ship to Athens in an attempt to punish Athens. He doesn't want to fight all of the Greeks. He doesn't want to conquer all of Greece. He just wants to punish Athens for getting involved in his relationship. He had a relationship. The Persians and the Ionians had a thing, right? They were in a relationship together. And in comes the Athenians trying to break them up. Well, if that happened to you, well, how would you react? Some dude comes out of nowhere and tries to break you up with your significant other. How would you react to that? Would you be happy? No. And that's the Battle of Marathon. And why Marathon? It's because the beach of Marathon was the only flat place. Remember, Greece has all the mountains. The only place where you can put, dump 30,000 troops near Athens. So the Persians go to the beaches of Marathon, dump their 30,000 troops. The... Athenian army meets them at the top of the beach in 490 BCE. They kind of hang out there for a couple days. The Athenians go to people and ask for help. The Spartans are in the middle of a fertility uh, holiday. They're, they're worshiping. They're, they got, well, you can imagine what a fertility holiday is, right? It's wine. It's women. It's song. And it's, uh, it's a lot of drunken, you know, f- fornication, you know? People are partying, and the Spartans are like, we'll come and get you in three days. We'll come. Just hang out. The only people who show up are the Plataeans. P-L-A-T-A-E-N? E-A-N? It's a small town. They send 800 men, which is probably all of the adult men of the town. They send 800 men to help the Athenians. And I bring this up because when we do the Peloponnesian War, when we do later— the Athenians don't have a lot of friends, but they have Plataea, and they always remember. And the Plataeans can always say, we were there with you at Marathon. We are your one true friend. All these other people, all these other people, when the chips were down, they weren't there for you. We were there. And the Athenians always appreciated the Plataeans. The Plataeans could do no wrong. The Athenians were like, you're our, you're our homeboy. Right or wrong, you are our homeboy. And so the Battle of Marathon happens. Um, the Persians shoot their arrows at the Athenians and the Plataeans, uh, not wanting to be destroyed by the arrows. The Athenians and Plataeans charge down the mile, about a mile down the beach. Now remember, they're charging in August uh, or early September in 100-degree heat, uh, in full 60-pound armor, and they come crashing in to the Persians. And this is where they, the, per, the Greeks being in full armor mattered because the Persians were not able to expand. They were not able to go around. They were hemmed in by mountains at the beach. The beach had mountains on the left and mountains on the right. And so the Persians were never able to use their superior numbers. And hemmed in between the sea to their backs, the mountains to their sides, it allowed the Athenians to basically fight a phalanx battle but against guys who weren't prepared to fight a phalanx battle, who didn't have spears, who didn't have armor, who, who simply weren't prepared for it. And it's a 
stunning Athenian victory. It is absolutely stunning. They crushed the Persian army. Those who could get away, get into ships and escape. It's Persia's first defeat. In fact, the Persian army, uh, Persian navy goes like, well, the army's here, so we're going to sail to Athens and like sail into the port and take it over. So the Athenian army then marches back to Athens in order to, to, to get there before the, the navy gets there. This is where we get Marathon from because uh, the runner who goes to bring the news in a hundred, remember, he's he's the news runner. He's going to run twenty whatever it is, four or so miles, right from Marathon to Athens, twenty six miles, right in the heat. Maybe he's got a wine skin with him, right at a hundred degree after having fought a giant phalanx battle, right. He runs all the way to Athens. He gets to Athens. He says, he's like, <gasps> he's obviously dying because he's got heat stroke. And he gets in. People are like, what? What happened? And he goes, Nike, victory. The crowd goes, woo! He dies right there. The crowd goes, woo! They pick up his body and they take it to be buried in the sanctuary on the Acropolis. Now, in modern times, you would have given him some electrolytes, and you probably could have saved him. But it's the ancient world. And this is huge Athenian confidence. They defeated the conquerors of the world. Little Athens, which wasn't an important city yet. Remember, there's Corinth, there's Thebes, but there's especially Sparta. Sparta and Argos were kind of the leaders of the Greek world. The, Ar the Argos had been the, the big cheese. The Corinthians were the, the, the Amazon. They were the richest place. They were the Amazon.com place. Right? They didn't have a big empire, but they knew everybody. They were, hey, they're dealing. They're wheelers and dealers. And like they're everywhere doing everything. They're the richest people. And then the Spartans had kind of replaced the Argonauts as being the leading city. That kind of, when they spoke, other cities listened. Not that they followed, not that they did what the Spartans said to do, but not that the Spartans owned them. They owned Messenia, but they had that respect. They were the leading city. And all of a sudden, Athens starts to be like, we just defeated the Persians, which nobody, not the Egyptians, not the Babylonians, not the Indians, had done. And what did they do? They build a navy for when the Persians return. Because of course the Persians are going to return. Dude, if you beat LeBron James in a one-on-one, -on -one, Michael Jordan in a one-on-one, -on -one, before you do a nice little fadeaway jumper, whoo, before your feet have touched the ground, LeBron is going best two out of three. There is no way LeBron is going to let you just walk away after one victory. So they know the Persians are coming back. They Persians have to come back. It's too embarrassing. Remember, there's the Babylonians, there's the Egyptians, there's the Lydians, all who think the Greeks are poor hillbillies. They're going to revolt. The Egyptians revolt immediately. So it's guaranteed the Persians are coming back. So they build 300 ships that they called their wooden wall. 
Why? Because they figured the Persians came by ship the first time. They're going to come by ship the second time. And so they build a navy. It's 300 ships. So each ship has 200 people on it. That's 60,000 men. That creates the Athenian democracy. Athens, for the first time, becomes a full democracy. Where the, where the assembly is sovereign. Okay. Well, Darius will die of natural causes. Trying to put down the Egyptian revolt. His son, Xerxes, will take over. Complete the, complete the reconquest of Egypt. Put down other little revolts. And say, okay. Now I got to get revenge for dad. In fact, in um, Herodotus, there's a, there's a um, Hamlet moment where the ghost, the ghost of Darius comes back and goes, Xerxes, revenge, avenge me. As if it's like um, Red Dawn. Avenge me, son, avenge me. And so Xerxes is like, holy shit, I gotta, I gotta better do this, right? So it's like Hamlet or Red Dawn. And so he gets his army together. He sends out spies. And he ends the Egyptian revolt, but the big thing is not to get the revenge, not to just not to convince the Egyptians don't revolt anymore, which is what a conquest of Greece would do, but it's to prove that Persians do big things. His father, Darius, tried to conquer one city. That's not what Persians do. Persians conquer all of Greece. They conquer all the cities. And so the idea is... They're going to invade Greece with a full army, 250,000 troops. They're going to bring a massive navy that's going to bring the food and the weapons and the uh, water. They're going to bring, it's going to be a, it's going to be a city, Babylon, on the move. They move into northern Greece, they go into Macedon, and the Macedonians immediately, immediately surrender. Please, go invade Greece. We don't want you here. You're going to eat us out of house and home. They enter northern Greece, and who's waiting for them? The Spartans. And 6,000 other Greeks, including some Athenians, including some Corinthians. And they're waiting in a past called Thermopylae, where, it's, where there are two mountains. The two mountain range comes so close, only about a cart can get through it. It's in some ways, it's, it's good that we live in Philly. For those of you who are Canham County College students, it's, it's, it's the Schuylkill. If you've ever driven on the Schuylkill, you've got the river on your right and the drop-off, right? The drop-off goes to the river, the Schuylkill River, and you've got the mountains on your left as you go through the Appalachian, as you go through the Alleghenies. There is no place to put another road, and so that road is always, if you've ever driven it, you know there's always traffic because it's two lanes, it was two lanes when it was built, and somewhere in the 60s, they divided those two lanes into four lanes. And that's it, because there's no other room. The train goes through tunnels, punches right through the mountains. The roadway snakes around the river, follows the river. It's on the plateau between the river and the mountains. So they can't expand the Schuylkill, and so there's always traffic from 6 a.m. in the morning till 9 p.m. at night. There is always, if you ever want to get the King of Prussia from Philly, there is always traffic. And that's Thermopylae. It is so narrow that one phalanx of 300 guys can plug it. 
And so they do. Now, the idea is they will hang out there for three months, that they will stop that Persian army for three months. The snows will come. The Persian army will starve. It will have to leave. The Spartans lasted three days. Thermopylae is not a glorious victory. It's not a glorious last stand. It is a humiliating defeat. Now, I know you watched a movie, and I know you maybe saw the, saw the cartoon and the comic strip, and it's like, oh, yes, and, in the, and, in, and, in, and it is a heroic death in Herodotus. But to the other Greeks, it's a disaster. Because it's like taking the plug out of a sink. The water just, the Persians just flood into northern Greece. They flood into central Greece. Because now that they got through the bottleneck, they could spread out. And they just start burning stuff down. And where are they going? Where are they headed? One place. Athens. Athens is not allowed to surrender. They are going to burn Athens to the ground. Athens must burn. It is a, Thermopylae is a glorious defeat, but it is a humiliating one. Their king is killed. Leonidas is killed at it. The Spartans don't know. Will the Helots revolt? Will Argos attack? Argos is next door, waiting for a Persian army to show up. Had the Persians sent 5,000 troops by sea to Argos, they could have invaded and conquered Sparta. Right at Sparta's doorstep, or laid siege to the city. That's how desperate the world was after Thermopylae. Athens is burned. The Athenians get on their ships and they go across the, the inlet to an island called Salamis where they debate. They have a debate. What should we do? Should we leave and go to Sicily and start over? Athenia, Ath Athens part two? Should we fight? The other Greeks are all talking about surrendering. The Spartans want to have a, a Gadadamarong. They want to have a, 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 an Armageddon. They want to have a, a battle at the end of the world. They want to plug up the Peloponnese and like, like all go down fighting in one giant battle. And all the other Greeks look at them and go, you're freaking strange. No, we're not all dying because you people have a fetish. Like, just thank you. Other Greeks are talking here. And what they come up with is uh, their leader, Themistocles, the Athenian democratic leader, Themistocles, is an admiral, comes up with an idea, and that's cleverness is better than strength. He's going to send a spy to Xerxes and tell Xerxes to send his navy into the inlet and that the Athenian navy will join them and they'll join them and have a battle and destroy the other Greeks that have ships. And once they destroy the other Greeks that have ships, the Persian Navy and the Athenian Navy working together will be able to land troops all over Greece and conquer whoever resists, i.e. the Spartans. That's the, that's the lie. It's a lie. But the lie is, is in the truth. Remember, all good lies are, are, are seeded with the truth. And that truth is the Athenians just want Athens back. And so the idea is the spy will tell Xerxes, the Athenians want Athens back. Please, you are the conqueror. You've obviously won. We're sorry for Marathon. Just give us Athens back and we will work for you. And we'll actually not only work for you, but if you give us Athens back, we will be the leaders of Greece for you because we hate the Spartans too. And 
Xerxes believes it, and he's not wrong. The Thebans and the Argonauts, Argos and Thebes, were working with him. They had sent them him troops. They had sent him diplomats. They were all in. Thebes is like, I hate Athens, and I hate Sparta, and I hate Corinth. I'm with you. Argos was the same. I hate Sparta so much, I am totally with you, Persia. So why would Xerxes think the Athenians were lying? He wanted to believe it. He had burned Athens. He had won. Why wouldn't the Athenians now surrender? Everyone else had. And so he sends his navy in to the Straits. Now he is warned, and I know I'm taking a little time to tell these stories, but he was warned not to do it by a Phoenician queen, a pirate queen, a Phoenician pirate queen, a Phoenician queen. She's not yet a pirate. She'll become a pirate queen who says, I know these Greeks. They're all liars. This is kind of the, the Trojan horse, right? This is beware Greeks bearing gifts. Here's this, here's this spy. Here's this diplomat. Here's this. It's actually a slave. Here's Themistocles' slave telling you exactly what you want to hear. Exactly. It's too good to be true, Xerxes. But all the men are like, no, Athens is defeated. We have burned their city. Xerxes is the greatest king in the whole wide world. Ho, 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 ho. Little woman. See, see how misogyny works? Little woman, you don't know anything. And she's like, I know the Greeks. They're all liars. All of them. This is a lie. And, and Xerxes is like, well, I will listen to my men. Thanks, thanks, little lady. But I'm listening to my men. So he sends the ships in. He's watching. He gets, he gets his throne to be put on top of a mountain so he could watch the battle from like the bleachers. And the Athenians don't defect. In fact, the Athenians smash right into the, the unsuspecting Persians. The Persians think that the Athenians are, gonna, are gonna to, going to defect and turn around and defeat the other Greeks. And so the Persians come forward and the Athenians turn and smash right into them. And Xerxes is watching his entire navy go down in defeat. Except for one group of ships. Guess. Guess whose group of ships that was. Yes, the Phoenician queen. Her troops, her ships, her five, six ships were not taken by surprise. She knew they were lying. She held them back. She fights her way out of the trap. Because the Athenians are attacking from one side. The Greeks come in from the other. They're smashing these boats. She breaks out. Gets away. She knows she can't go back to Phoenicia. Because she has told Xerxes, the king of Persians, he's wrong. She can't go back to her, her, to her city. Because eventually the king of Persia will come back to make an example of her. Because she's the one person who will go, I told you so. And the king of Persia can't have someone saying, I told you so. It's too humiliating. So what she does is, for a while she goes to Cyprus, and then she goes to the islands in the eastern Mediterranean, where she then becomes a pirate princess hunting down Persian shipping. Yes, she becomes a pirate princess of the Mediterranean. How cool is that? And so the Battle of Salamis is a glorious Athenian naval victory. It destroys the Persian shipping supplies. It destroys the food supplies for the Persian army. The Persians have to retreat. Babylon and Egypt revolt. The, tr the, the army leaves. 
They, they leave a, a rump group that stays behind. And imagine being those guys. So those guys, they, they'll, they'll stay in Athens. They'll reconquer Athens a year later. And they get crushed at the Battle of Plataea. And so uh, we're, we're, that's the end of the 300 movie where all the Greeks are like, we're going to kill these guys because they have no help. They have no support. Xerxes cares about Egypt, which is the richest place on earth and all the food. He cares about Babylon, which is the richest city on earth. He's got to get these other places. He's worried about revolts. The revolts are happening. He's got to put them down. So that army that's, that's left there is like an orphaned army. It's like the French at Dembien Fu. And what happens? It gets crushed. Like the French at them being foo. What are the results? The results are Sparta is traumatized. Yeah, they won. Technically, they were the leaders. They were the winners. They led the alliance. Not the Athenians. The Spartans were technically the leaders. But their king is dead. Their army defeated. Their ideas thrown aside. They were traumatized by this war. Argos nearly attacked them. The Helots nearly revolted. The feeling is we came really close. We got involved in Greek stuff. We got involved in the Greek larger world. And it nearly cost us everything. Why should the Spartans be the policemen of Greece? Why? Let's just go home. Let's run our slaves. Let's be rich. Let's do our thing. Let's be tough guys and keep to ourselves. They go home. They recede as a leading state in Greece. They are more worried about their slaves, more worried about their home economics than leading Greece. Athens, on the other hand, is victorious. If Marathon announced them on the world stage... Salamis makes them the leading state in Greece. And they will be for the next hundred years. They defeat Persia for the second time. No one's defeated them once. Now they've defeated them a second time. They've saved Greece. The Navy is going to go on the offensive. Having won, they're like, oh, let's keep going. They're going to liberate Macedonia, Thrace, Ionia. Remember those cousins that they helped? They show up victorious, kick the Persians out, kick them across the mountains. They will form what's called the Delian League, an alliance to protect other cities if the Persians ever return. Because the thought is, look, we beat LeBron twice. Oh, we won two out of three. LeBron's probably going to ask for three out of five. So we better be prepared. We better even be more prepared. And so the Ionian cities, some Thracian cities, are going to come to Athens and say, when the Persians show back up, we need your help. And the Athenians say, of course. But it all costs money. The ships cost money. We have to hire the sailors. We have to, we have to repair the ships every year. So you're going to have to pay something. And the people say, of course we'll pay. Not a problem. And the Delian League acts like insurance. People pay Athens to protect them should the Persians ever return. Should stuff get bad, the Athenians will come to help them. And the Athenians are totally cool with that. They take the money. They, they, they maintain their ships. They pay their sailors. 
But like insurance companies, they're bringing in more money than they spend every year. And so they're going to have to figure out what to do with that money. Athens becomes the leading state of Greece. People turn to Athens for help. The Navy makes Athens the leading trade city, the economic engine of Greece. They will buy and trade your goods. See, your ship, if it's not being used at war, what can you do with it? You could put stuff on it. You could put stuff in it. Why leave your ship useless? Use it like an Amazon van. Sell stuff. Move it from place to place. And so Athens becomes both Amazon and UPS. It's willing to move stuff. It has the Navy. It will move stuff from place to place. This is how Corinth worked earlier. Athens will replace them, much to the Corinthians' jealousy. So they work as UPS. They're moving goods from place to place to place. But they're also making goods and selling goods and buying other people's goods. So people are happy with Athens. People like Athens. They're protecting us. They're buying our goods. I'm making money. They're making money. Everything is great. So we have an insurance money. We've got trade money. We've got a FedEx, UPS type of logistics money from the Navy. We're making huge money. Money is pouring into Greece. And what do we get? We get the golden age. We get Athens becoming Athens. We get Pericles, the height of democracy, the golden age. We get the Acropolis built. We get the Parthenon rebuilt. Everything you want to go and see in, in Athens today, you want to fly to Athens and go see the, the, quote, ruins, was built with that money, Delian League money. It was built at this time. Culture, knowledge, plays, art, Education, right? We talked about the plays. Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, all in this time period. Remember, Aeschylus was a soldier at both Marathon and a rower at Salamis. Athens becomes the school of Greece. It becomes the leading cultural city, the leading economic city. It becomes what you think of when you think of Athens. Look at the pictures on the video. We have the Golden Age on the left, all these big buildings, uh, you know, the giant statues. But on the right, we have Disney's Epcot emphasizing the spoken word, the plays, and the philosophy. And that's Athens, too. It was both militarily the leading city. It was also economically the leading city. And both of those places made it culturally the leading city. But Persia doesn't come back. And so people try to quit the Delian League. They don't need the insurance anymore. It's like if I told you, if I told you God came to me and told me, you don't need your car insurance anymore, you will never get into an accident. Would you want to keep car insurance? No. You have a guarantee you will never need it. From God, him, herself, itself, you will never need it. It's guaranteed. So why would you keep paying? But how does the car insurance company feel about that? No, 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 no. They like the money coming in. They like not paying out the money that you're not going to need because you're never going to get into an accident. And so Athens likes the money. And so the, when people try to stop paying, when people say, 
look, Athens, that was nice. I'm glad I paid for 15, 20 years, but it looks like the Persians aren't coming back. I don't need your services anymore. Uh, I just want to end our contract, please. Athens turns to them and say, oh, guys, that's cute. You see, all this time you thought you were paying for protection from Persia, when actually you're paying for protection from us, and you're going to keep paying. And the Delian League is turned into the Athenian Empire. And so if you're watching the video, there's all, of the, there's all this yellow and all these islands, all these places that only a navy can get to. Athens has the only navy that matters. So they're all in trouble, right? They need to trade with other cities. They've been using the the Athens' navy to do so. They need the protection. The Athens has been doing it. Athens can lay siege to any of these cities, and some of them they will, to prove their point. So while some of those cities in yellow are true allies, Plataea, for example, are true allies of Athens, a lot of them are hostages of the Athenian Empire. The Delian League was insurance. The Athenian Empire is the mafia. You are paying for protection from them. So everyone went from liking Athens to being freaked out by them. And so you pay for protection to Athens to protect you from Athens, which scares the middle and larger cities. Are we next? It looks... They, so they start looking for a protector. Corinth, Thebes. They start looking for a protector from Athens. Who can protect us from Athens? And that's how we'll get the Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesian War will last 30 years. And it is Athens, with a few of its friends, but immense imperial resources... They can pull money. They can pull food. They can pull, uh, if they pay high enough, even manpower from this empire. Right? They don't have the love. Very few friends. Versus the Peloponnesian League, which is Sparta, Thebes, Corinth, i.e. people who hate Athens and others. Anybody else. And those others include people in the Athenian Empire. And the question of the Peloponnesian War is who will control Greece? Will it be the traditional system, independent cities led by a conservative slave-holding Sparta or a unified Greece run by a commercial Athenian empire? That's the question. What this, this war is to remake Greece on a whole new level. Because the two systems, that independent cities and a conservative slave-holding Sparta and a commercial Athenian empire can't exist together. For, for 40 years, 50 years, they tried. It was like a cold war. They tried to live separately. The Spartans had their little empire in the Peloponnesus and their friends in Sicily and, and um, southern Italy. Meanwhile, the Athenians were in the Aegean and in the Black Sea, but sooner or later, man, they were coming together. Sooner or later, it was going to ha happen. Sooner or later, you were going to have 1968 in Prague or 1961, right, in Cuba, a Cuban Missile Crisis. You were going to have a place where the interests of both systems, not just cities, but systems, came together and caused, a, caused an explosion. 
So what is the result? Greece is wrecked. Almost all small cities are burned. You are either with us or against us. They are burned by Sparta. Plataea is depopulated. The people flee to Athens. The Spartans burn it down. Or it's lay siege to and destroyed by Athens. And this is the Milos genocide. The Athenian democracy voted to commit genocide on Milos. Voted to murder all of the men, enslave the women, and, and kick out, disperse the children. I bring this up because it's important for you to know because you live in a world where genocide is caused by tyrants, by Nazis, by evil people. And we'll see in Athens and in Rome, people voted for it. People chose to commit genocide. They weighed the options and they said, yeah, let's commit genocide. It's better for us if we kill our enemies. But the Spartans weren't, any, weren't much better. They obliterated Plataea. They leveled it to the ground. Now, the, the Spartans wanted to fight. One of the, th the weird thing about the Spartans is they were terrible at sieges. Awful at sieges. Good soldiers to fight in open battle. At Thermopylae, A+. Plus, right? They fought until they all died. But at siege... Oh, they're awful. I mean, they were so bad when they lay siege to Plataea. The Plataeans literally built um, built uh, ladders to go over the walls that the Spartans built to hem them in, to siege them in. They just built ladders, walked up to them, put them up, and while the Spartans were sleeping at night, they went over the walls and put out. I mean, just uh, awful. Awful besiegers. So, um, but the Spartans obliterated cities too. So Greece goes into a depression. And without the Athenian economic engine, because Athens will lose, Greek soldiers become mercenaries in Persia, who are the enemy. Remember, the Persians are the enemy, but the Persians have money. And the Persians look at the per Peloponnesian War and go, oh boy, we better hire some of these guys. Much better that they work for us than they attack us because they have nothing else to do. Sparta is victorious. Freedom of the Greeks. That was their slogan. Freedom of the Greeks. They put together an allied coalition capable of defeating Athens. It gains them legitimacy. Sparta is the leading city in Greece. They have returned. Argos is going to fade as a competitor from here on in. A new competitor will rise, and we'll talk about that in a second, but Argos fades away. Sparta is, is, has won. They are England in 1919, after the First World War. They have fought hard, they have lost some battles, but they have put together the coalition, they led it, they kept it together, and they won. Now, to do so... They also sold Ionia into Persian slavery. Remember, the Athenians had liberated Ionia. To get Persian help to build navies for the end of the war, this is the, the phase called the bloodbath of the Aegean, 411 to 404. The idea was you want to defeat Athens, you are going to have to smash its navy. You're going to have to destroy, kill drown those 60,000 men. You're going to have to defeat its democracy. 
Spartans don't have a navy. Sparta's inland. They don't know anything about the ocean. They get seasick. This is the Romans too. Seasick. Just looking at a rubber ducky in a tub. Bouncing up and down. Nuh-uh-uh. So how are the Spartans going to defeat the Athenians, the greatest sea peoples of the Greek world? Well, they know they can't. They know they have to build a navy that Athens will smash. So they have to build another navy that the Athens will smash. They have to build another navy, which means that navy can't be populated by Spartans because the worst use of a Spartan is having them row. The Spartans are like Ferraris. You don't put Ferraris on a dirt track on a Long Island speedway, you know, racetrack. That's, that's, no, you don't. So what they need is men, money to hire those men, uh, wood, an endless supply of wood, an endless supply of workers to build the ships, people who know how to build the ships. And there's only one place that has an infinite supply of wood, of money, and of people. And that's the Persian Empire. And so the Spartans go to the Persians and say, we need your help to defeat Athens. And the Persian king is like, this is not Xerxes anymore. I want to say it's Artaxerxes. But the Persian king is like, dude, I hate Athens. I am with you. I am totally with you. Whatever you need, blank check. You just use it. Um, but I'm going to need something from you. And Spartans go, what? What do you need? He goes, well, the Athenians took Ionia from us. And I know it's only 25 cities and it's not that important and we're the richest empire in the whole wide world. But Xerxes got defeated trying to take it. Darius got defeated trying to um, get revenge about it. I, you got to give it up. I need it. I can't make a deal with you and not get Ionia. It's, it's non-negotiable. And the Spartans say, yeah, okay. They sell Ionia into the Persians. Now remember, remember what their, what their slogan was, freedom of the Greeks. And they sell fellow Greeks, Greeks who were trying to also fight against the Athenians at times. They sell them into slavery in Persia. How do you feel about that? Athens is defeated some of the Ionian cities were depressed. They're like, oh, man, that was our ally. But other ones were like, woo, we're finally free. Hello. It's Persia knocking. <coughs> uh, I have a tough time telling you this, but we own you now. But, but, but we got freedom. But Sparta. Sparta. Turn around, Sparta. Look at me. Turn around. Turn around. Sparta just walks away. They're the leading state of Greece. Now, the bloodbath in the Aegean is exactly as I described it. The Spartans build a navy using mercenaries, using the wood and the money from Persia. And they build a navy and the Athenians smash it. And then they build another one and the Athenians smash that. And the, they build another one and the Athenians will smash that one. But every time the Athenians smash one, they're losing ships. Three ships, four ships, eight ships. And those ships are full of experienced crews that can't be replaced. And so the Athenians know they only, if they lose one battle... It's all over. 
And so the fighting is ferocious, which is why it's called bloodbath in the Aegean. 10% of all Greek men will die, will drown in the 10 years of this period. But in the end, there's a battle. The Athenians lose. Their navy is defeated. And a Persian fleet led by a Spartan admiral sails into Athens and extinguishes the only democracy the world has ever known. And Sparta becomes the leading state of Greece. And by becoming the leading state of Greece, people are now mad at Sparta. See, remember they promised freedom of the Greeks? Well, they sold the Persians into slavery, and everybody knows it. And they're like, well, sooner or later, they're going to sell us into slavery too, ain't they? And so 25 years later in 375, Thebes revolts. Now, Thebes is north of Athens, so it's farther away. It's harder to get to. They revolt. And the Thebans march to Sparta. Instead of waiting for the Spartans to come up to them, they march on Sparta. And at the Battle of Leuctra in 375, crush the Spartan army. Tells you what happened in the 25 years from the Peloponnese. From, the, from 404, where they put together the alliance that wins, to 375, where they're utterly crushed by Epanamandus and the Thebans. And what does this mean? It means Greece will have no leader. More instability, more poverty, and more craziness. Wars break out all over the place. There is no leader. It won't be Athens with its money. It won't be Sparta with its respect and its dignity. It is chaos. What happens to Athens? They become a university town. They have cultural power, which replaces military power. Cultural power will be more important than military and economic power. Basically, Athens says, we're done. We're going to do philosophy. We're going to do plays. We're going to do culture. They had a bitter, bitter struggle of military economic power, and they were defeated. On land, they lost to the Thebans at Delium. Sparta, they lost at Mantinea. They lost again at trying to conquer um, the supply lines of the Peloponnesians of Sparta and Thebes by conquering Sicily. They failed there. And then their navy is ground down in the bloodbath of the Aegean. They are traumatized. It's over. There is not a family in Athens who hasn't lost multiple members. Thucydides will invent military history with his book, The Peloponnesian War, which is basically a WTF. What happened? How did we lose? How is it possible? And his answer is, we had Pericles, and then Pericles died in the plague, and none of his successors were as good as Pericles. They all sucked. Basically, his answer was, the democracy didn't have the leadership it needed. It had its selfish. It had soulless it had craven leaders. It had populists who promised big things and never delivered. But Thucydides invents military history. Like the Persian, the Persian Wars by Herodotus has military history in it. But Thucydides is basically, when I write my military history, I am writing in, not the style of, but in the, 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 the lane that Thucydides wrote, invented. So Thucydides invents military history to answer the question, WTF. 
Socrates invents essentially modern philosophy, our concept of Greek philosophy, which you have seen in the philosophy uh, episode. How does the world work? How could we lose? Right? Because we all, we all have the same gods, so we have gods that are on our side, Athena. We have gods that are against us, so that doesn't explain why we lost. So how does the world work that is possible that we, the greatest people in the whole wide world, could possibly lose? Aristophanes will write Lysistrata, the first anti-war work of art, and it will be about the disaster in Sicily. 25,000 men go to Sicily, and none of them return. It is an absolute disaster. But in it, the leading characters in Lysistrata are women, Athenian women, Spartan women. And the idea of this is women are affected by war, that women matter, that women have opinions. And that when they organize, they can change the world. They could change men. It's also a sex play. How are the women going to get the men to change? By denying them um, happy, happy time. Now remember, yes, the war went on for 30 years. You weren't at war all the time. You were at war a couple of weekends in the summer, in June, and a couple of weekends again in July, and maybe a weekend or two in uh, maybe sometime during the week in August, you're like most of the time you spent home because there was snow, there were rains, there was, you know, you had three months where you went to war per year. So the idea was the women will just say no. And so the entire play is this comedy of the men trying to decide which do they want more, the, the nookie or the war, and the women actually having a worse time because in the Greek world, women enjoyed sex more than the men did. Why? Well, men had war. Men had business. Men had all these other things to do. Women had having babies. Women had sex and babies. And the men had all these other things that you had to do when you weren't having sex. And so, <laughs> so in the Greek world, not having the nookie was actually worse for women than it was for men. It's exactly the opposite of American culture. American culture is it comes out of the Victorian culture, which views sex as something men want and women have to hold and deny. That's not the Greek world. It's the exact opposite. The Persians, the Persians are the big winners. They get Ionia back. <laughs> so much for freedom of the Greeks. They allied with Sparta to keep the peace. They defeated Athens. They got their revenge. The Persians hire Greek mercenaries to protect them from Greeks. So if any Greek city decides they want to be a new Athens or wants to like get revenge on Sparta, on Persia, and they, and they want to invade the Persian Empire, they have to fight a Greek army. It's also very clear that the Persians believe the, the phalanx is now the best military unit in the world. That the Persian army might be big, but man for man, it can't stand up to a Greek, Greek army. It can't stand up to a Greek phalanx. So what does it do? It buys its own. Persia is rich. It is safe. The idea is make the Aegean 500 BCE again, man. It's the Persian's world. Before, basically... The world in 404 or 400, and certainly by 375, is basically as if Marathon never happened. But this happens. 
Persian royal brothers start murdering each other with no great place to conquer, with no new lands to, to, to bring into the empire, with no ability. There's nothing. Like, beyond Greece, there's just the, 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 the woods of the Balkans. There's nothing out there. North of the Caucasus, there's just the woods of, of Russia and the steppe of the Ukraine. There is nothing worth conquering. They, have, they own the world. They won. And so with nothing to do, royal princes start murdering each other. And the most important work that comes out of this is Xenophon's Anabasis, the mark up country. Whereas Cyrus the Younger, the younger brother of the king, uh, I want to say it's Artaxerxes or Artaxerxes II, the younger brother of the king uh, knows that his brother is one day going to murder him. So what he does is he hires a Greek army. He goes to the Spartans. The Greeks like Cyrus the Younger a lot, actually. They, they would be really happy if Cyrus the Younger became king of Persia. He'd be an ally. And he goes and he hires a Greek army. And he goes and invades the Persian Empire of his brother. And he marches all the way to Babylon. Nobody stops him. Him and his Greek army march in. All the way into the heart, 2,000 miles into the middle of the Persian Empire. They fight a battle. They win. The Greek army crushes the army of the king of Persia. Cyrus the Younger, though, is dumb. He goes and tries to he tries to recreate his, his name ancestor. He tries to recreate Cyrus by killing the king of Persia. Cyrus um, actually took took captive his, his grandfather in the battle. You know, or different, or or he killed his grandfather in the battle himself, and so Cyrus the Younger sees his brother on the battlefield and goes charging in. Ah! And his brother's bodyguards all put their arrows out and bing, and turn him into a pincushion. I mean, it's dumb. He won the battle and he got dead. But that Greek army then elects new leaders and turns around and marches its way back out of the Persian Empire, and the Persians can't stop them. The Persians can't attack it. And so Xenophon, who's in that army, who's one of the, who likes Cyrus a lot, Cyrus the Younger, writes this book called the Anabasis, and that becomes the handbook for how to invade Persia. Alexander will take it with him. It showed that Persia is weaker than it looks. That a Greek army, 10,000 men, a Greek army of 10,000, not that much. Remember, the Persian army is 250,000 men. A Greek army of 10,000 can march in and march out. That Persia looks strong. It is rich. But it's also not as strong as you think it is. All the Greeks need is a leader to maybe push that house of cards over. And that will be Philip and Alexander. In the generation following the Battle of Leuctra, you get the rise of Philip, of Macedon. Philip will create a new model army of Macedonians. Now, the Macedonians are like these Greek hillbilly cousins. They're not Greek. The Greeks don't consider them to be Greek. And they live in the mountains or where the mountains end and the plateau begins. So they're good horse country. They are Akkad to Sumer. 
when we talked about Mesopotamia, and the Sumerians were like, we're all sophisticated. And then there's these weird hillbillies up there in Akkad. That's, that's who the Macedonians are. Excellent horse troops. And what Philip does is take his heavy Macedonian cavalry, and then he takes the Greek idea of the phalanx and changes it. Instead of a 10-foot spear and a big shield, he t instead makes it a two-handed 22-foot spear. And what that allows is for the phalanx to become an offensive army. It will be protected on its left and its right, not by mountains, but by horses, by men on horses. And now it's got a big, long spear that will kill anybody, almost anybody, who wants to fight hand-to-hand. -hand. It will just push them out of the way. Philip conquers Greece. There's some revolts. He plays different things. But in the end, he marches his army. There's a war, and he marches his army into Greece. He wins the battle. He defeats the Thebans. And boom, he's in charge. And he says to everybody, how about we, how about, how about, how about, hey, 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 stop arguing. You know what we could all agree on? Let's invade Persia and get, get rich. And people go, all right, we'll do that. Except the Persians, they're not so happy about that idea. And so the Persian king hires an ex-boy toy of Philip. And I have to tell you, Philip, I, we don't have any time for any of this, but Philip is the manliest man in Greece. And he had lots of female lovers, and he had more than a few male lovers. And one of the ex-boy toys gets hired to get revenge. Because there's nothing worse than being an ex-boy toy. Like, no one takes you seriously. And so, at his daughter's wedding, the ex-boy toy comes up to him, and Philip goes, What the hell are you doing here? And the boy toy says this, and stabs him right in his one good eye. Philip had lost, had been in a phalanx battle, and the splinters of the fa of the uh, of a of a um, spear had had taken out one of his eyes during the battle. His his right eye, I think, but taken out one of his eyes. So he had only one eye, and the boy toy stabs him right through it, kills kills Philip almost instantaneously. Uh, he himself is killed before he can escape. That leaves Alexander, Alex, his 18-year-old son, Philip's 18-year-old son, as the new king. He needs legitimacy. He's only 18. No one takes him seriously. He has no military victories. Um, there's a lot of worries of, can he hold the Greeks together? Can he hold the Macedonian noble, nobles? What about the Thracians? All of these guys that Philip could hold together, because Philip was, like Cyrus, the manliest man in Greece. He could hold it together just by being Philip. Could an 18-year-old boy do it? Well, the Thebans revolt, the Thracians revolt, and Alexander crushes them. He marches up the Thrace, crushes the Thracian army, then runs back down, crosses through Macedonia into Greece, goes through Thermopylae, hits the Thebans, obliterates the Theban army, kills all of the, the, um, the sacred band, the homosexual uh, phalanx that is the best troops in, in, in Thebes, then burns Thebes to the ground. It's something he says he will regret later, but it was a don't mess with me, don't F with me, I might be 19, but don't F with me. And everyone in Greece goes, whoa, dude, we cool, we cool, we cool. And he says, how about we go to Persia and we get rich? Just like Dad said. And everyone looks around at each other and goes, well, if we say no, he might kill us. So, yay, let's go. And the idea was you can't revolt against Alex if you're in his army getting rich. 
So Alex basically gets legitimacy by promising people to get rich. The irony of his invasion of the Persian Empire is there were more Greeks, Greek speakers, in the Persian army than in Alexander's army. More Greeks fought for the Persians than for Alex. Remember, Macedonians aren't Greek. So most of his army is Macedonian and Thracian and Greek. And there's maybe 40,000, 50,000 when they start, right? The Persian Empire had 50,000 Greeks in it all by itself and then had another 200,000 of other people. Well, Alex will invade the Persian Empire and 10 years, 12,000 miles, four battles and lots of sieges later, conquers it. It is in military history until basically the second, the, the invasion of Normandy and the conquest of um, Europe against the Germans by both the Soviet Union in the East and the Americans in the West. It is perhaps the most stunning military action in the history of military actions. I mean, it's really not until uh, the Romans, as good as the Romans are, they have nothing anywhere close to as audacious. And that's okay. The Romans weren't, or, weren't always audacious. They were engineers. They plotted. They went step by step by step. I mean, you basically have to get to Napoleon to get someone who's doing stuff as crazy as what Alex does. I mean, this shouldn't have happened, and it does. It proves the Greek phalanx is the best unit in the world. Mesopotamian armies just collapse. In the three battles, uh, the Persian army fights. The fourth battle is in India. The three battles, I mean, he wins in five minutes. I mean, at the Battle of Isis, he wins in ten minutes. And what Alexander realizes is audacity. Alexander will become the model for young conquering heroes. Caesar will actually cry about it in Plutarch. When Caesar becomes 32 years old or so, he will cry. He'll be like, his men will find him and go, Caesar, what's the matter? He goes, oh, when Alexander was my age, he had already conquered the world. What have I done? He becomes the model for the young. I mean, Charles Twelfth of Sweden was a hero at 18, wins his first battle against the Russians at 18, wins for the first 10 years he's at war. He's called the Alexander of the North by Voltaire. You get, he, you know, young military geniuses get called the new Alexander. It's audacity. You attack, you attack, you attack. But he also knew how to pay people off. He also was excellent at politics. He is willing to work with, to hire, to marry Persians, Bactrians. Now, Bactrians are basically Afghanistan today. He melds cultures. He's willing to meld, meld cultures, but Macedonians aren't. There are huge fights. He actually murders in a drunken fit, in a drunken brawl, his friend, um, Clytus the Black. Means black hair. Um, and it's the first time we see Eurocentrism of what will become white supremacy, of these Macedonian noblemen turning to Alex, and Alex is like, I am marrying a Persian princess, and I will marry a Bactrian princess. And his men turning to him and going, what about a Greek princess? What about a Greek woman? Why, why, why? What's with all these other peoples? What's with all these Asian peoples? And Alex is putting together, he thinks he's putting together this meld of Persian, of Mesopotamian, and Greek. He's going to make a super mix, like Babylon, but for the world. 
but you see the first steps of Eurocentrism, of white supremacy, of Macedonians and Greeks going, why would we assimilate with losers? We're great. They suck. Why don't we just kill them, conquer them, take their stuff? Why would we want to mix with them? Why would we want to have babies that are half them? And this, this is not where white supremacy comes from, but you see it. It's the start of, now remember, the ancients aren't racist. So there's nothing about the color of one's skin in this. They don't go, oh, brown people are worse than us. But they do say they're not Greek. Greek culture is better. They're not Macedonian. Macedonians are better. We won. Why would we marry them? So Alexander dies returning to Greece in Babylon, probably of malaria, but his body is just exhausted. The amount of warfare he did, the amount of times he's injured, the amount of energy he spent, the sleepless nights, all the sex, all the wars, all the drinking, his body, the moment he got sick, his body just collapsed. And so while he died at 32, it's not particularly old in the ancient world. And having lived Alexander's life, dude, he lived many people's lives. But with him dead, his empire breaks up into parts. Ptolemy, Seleucus, and Antigonus will divide up. His generals will divide it up. Ptolemy will get Egypt. Ptolemy will be the great ancestor 200 years later of Cleopatra. Cleopatra is the last Greek Ptolemaic princess. Seleucus will take over Mesopotamia. He'll build the city called Antioch. He'll dominate basically Mesopotamia. It technically goes all the way to India. It technically includes Iran, but it's too far. So he's really there in Asia Minor, um, Syria, um, the Levant, and kind of down to where Babylon is. They'll build a new city called Katisaphon. There, but the real capital is Antioch in Syria. And then there's Antigonus. Antigonus will take over Macedon, Greece. He'll take over the traditional homeland. What these generals then do, or these new kings, I should say, is loot the Asiatic world. And that loot, that money, that there has ne not until the conquest of the new world is this much gold poured into an economy all at once. And it's so much money. It's trillions. I mean, literally trillions of dollars of money in today's money. It will fund the next 200 years of building and conflict. Ptolemy will build the Pharos, the great lighthouse, the great library. Rhodes will build the Colossus. And there are endless, endless, endless mercenary armies. Year after year after year, these three empires will fight each other. And the kingdoms that grow up in between, the frontiers between them, will play both sides, will fight. with. They're not as big, they're not as strong, but they will fight each other and they will fight as a lot allies with these other big kingdoms. So there's 200 years of great buildings and warfare. So why does this matter? Well, Hellenism wins. Greek culture becomes the most sophisticated culture in the world. Ironic, right? Because it starts with hillbillies and then it's picked up by more hillbillies and it becomes the culture of the Mesopotamian world. It replaces Mesopotamian culture, mostly by self-interest. The Greeks get, Greek-speaking people get the best jobs. They get the best government jobs. They, get, they become the military officers. They become the luxury merchants. They become the scholars. 
So non-Greek elites become quote-unquote Greek by either marriage, they marry their rich non-Greeks. So what do they do? They marry poor or really middle-class Greeks. They don't marry poor Greeks, like poor farmers, like that's not going to help you. But they marry middle-class Greeks. This is kind of like if you've seen Titanic, Billy Zane has a lot of money, but no reputation. Kate Winslet has a huge reputation, no money. And so they hook up together. That's exactly what's going on here. These guys with no reputation but money are going to hook up with people with reputation but no money. And they're going to mix. And their kids will be Greek because Greek will get you the better job, will get you the better life, will get you the better education. So Athenian culture becomes Greek culture, quote unquote, and becomes standardized. Athens becomes like Cambridge or Oxford became in the British Empire. Non-rich non-Greeks, like farmers in Egypt, get locked out. Right? P poor peasants in, in Antioch and Syria get locked out. They are looking at the rich people who of their culture move on and leave them behind. And they're looking at the world, at Greeks coming in and taking all the best jobs. And they're like, why can't we? And the answer is they don't have the money for the education. And they don't have the reputation or prestige for any Greeks to marry them. So their old culture is a hindrance to new wealth and new opportunities. And this, we can see this in a very modern model of immigration. That you had to give up your culture to have a better life. This is the speak English in the USA. Hey, speak English. Which is give up your culture and become like us. This is the French and the Swiss demanding that Muslims give up their burqa. And that's the problem. That is the great trauma. Is one must give up who one is to succeed. All right. Well, thank you very much. Be safe. This was a big episode. So be careful out there.